Uh, well, friends, I, I don't know whether you've climbed any tall towers lately, uh, but last year my family went on a holiday to Melbourne, and uh, we went to the top of the Eureka Tower. Has anyone been to the Eureka Tower? Yeah, a few of us. Uh, the Eureka Tower is apparently the highest viewing platform in the entire Southern Hemisphere. Uh, when you get to the top, you can see virtually the entire city. In fact, the whole thing is so high that when you get to the top, you can see clouds moving beneath you. And to top it all off, the top of the tower is covered in glass that is plated in 24 karat gold. Uh, it was a breathtaking building, and uh, I must admit I came away thinking, how clever are these people uh, who built this enormous structure? However, uh, as I read some information about the place uh, that was posted around, I, I realised that the tower is more than a physical building. Uh, rather, it symbolises the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the city of Melbourne. Uh, this was a city that had aspirations of being one of the top cities in the world. This was a city that celebrated human achievement this was a city making a name for itself, and the tower was simply a, a means of making that statement. Well, uh, what is true of cities and nations is also true for individuals as well, isn't it? What are the things that you and I aspire to for the future? What are the things that you and I aspire to for the future? What are the, what are the towers that we are building in our lives that give expression to the hopes and dreams and aspirations that we have for life? And what place does God have in those hopes and dreams and aspirations? Uh, now, we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah uh, for the past a few months. Uh, we've looked at the first 12 chapters, and uh, if you remember, the focus in the first 12 chapters is really on the city of Jerusalem uh, and Judah. God says to Jerusalem through the prophet Isaiah that she will be judged for her sins. But he also promises that uh, one day he will transform this city into his own glorious city, a new Jerusalem through the figure of the Emmanuel, or the Messiah. However, um, as June mentioned this morning, uh, you'll notice from chapter 13 that things change quite dramatically in Isaiah. For the focus of chapter 13, uh, all the way to chapter 27, is not on the city of Jerusalem, but in fact on the nations that surround Jerusalem, uh, if you just uh, grab your Bibles and, and flick uh, from chapter 13 and, and just flick forward uh, through the pages, uh, you can see there that uh, the next chapters from chapter 13 to 27 are a series of oracles or declarations made by God in judgment of the surrounding nations. Uh, places like Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, uh, these are all nations that surround Jerusalem. Now, uh, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jerusalem was, was a city that was harassed by enemy nations around her. 
And so if God is going to bring, uh, uh, bring about the new Jerusalem, then he's going to have to deal with Jerusalem's enemies. Uh, now, friends, uh, we won't have time uh, to look at all the, these nations uh, in detail, uh, at least uh, during our time on Sundays. And so it'll be a good idea for you, I think, to read through chapters 13 to 27 in your own time if you get a chance. But uh, you'll notice there that the first oracle, which we'll spend some time looking at today, uh, the first oracle concerns the nation of Babylon. Uh, you can see it there in verse 1 of chapter 13, can't you? Chapter 13, verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Uh, now, you might think that's a little bit strange because uh, up until this point, if you remember, the enemy of Jerusalem has been the nation of Assyria. It was Assyria who was the superpower in the region during the reign of King Ahaz. It was Assyria who was threatening to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. However, what we do know is that even during Isaiah's period of prophecy, the nation of Babylon was well known to Isaiah. Uh, in chapter 39, uh, we actually see the king, of, uh, the king of Babylon paying a visit to King Hezekiah, uh, who was uh, King Ahaz's son. But here, I want you to notice that the prophet Isaiah perceives that it is actually the nation of Babylon, not Assyria, who will be uh, the great enemy of the city of Jerusalem and Judah. And so, uh, what does God have to say to the nation of Babylon? Uh, well, three things. Uh, firstly, he says, I am gathering my army against you. I am gathering my army against you. Uh, in verse 2, you'll see there that God raises a signal flag to gather his army so that they can enter the gates of Babylon. Uh, in verse 3, notice that the army is composed of uh, consecrated ones. Uh, these are his special forces, his set-apart forces, who have been given the specific role of executing God's anger against Babylon. In verse 4, we are invited to, to hear the sound of the gathering army. Can you hear the, the roar of a massive multitude of men gathering on the mountains for war as God musters them together? But who is this army? Well, uh, it's a little bit unclear at this point because in verse 5, it seems like that they are people who come from a distant land. But there is also a hint here that it might be a supernatural army because notice that they come also from the end of the heavens. Secondly, God says to, to Babylon, I will utterly destroy you. I will utterly destroy you. Uh, this is what it will be like when God sends his army in unrestrained anger on the day of judgment or on the day of the Lord. Uh, in verse 6, notice that it will be a day of wailing and anguished crying and mourning. In verse 7, 
It will be a day of utter terror, such that the strength of men turn to jelly and human hearts melt in fear. In verse 8, it will be a day of unimaginable anguish, like a woman in labour. My wife reminds me every time I have a cold these days uh, that sudden labour pains are the worst form of pain that any human being can ever experience. That's what it will be like for the people of Babylon. Further, in verse 9, the lush and fertile land of Babylon itself will be made desolate. In verse 10, it will be a day of darkness when the God who is light will no longer shine the light of his kindness upon the land. In verse 12, the people themselves will be eradicated so that there are only a few left. In verse 14, there will be no protection for the people of Babylon. They will be like a hunted gazelle. They will be like a sheep without a shepherd at the mercy of wolves. In verse 15, it will be a day of no mercy. The Babylonians will be thrust through with a sword. Their babies will be dashed in pieces. Their houses will be plundered. Their wives ravished and violated. But thirdly, we are given the reason here why all this will happen to the nation of Babylon. Can you see that it will happen because of the pompous pride of the Babylonians. In verse 11, have a look with me at verse 11, God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pride of the ruthless. Friends, how awful is human pride and arrogance In the eyes of God. Here, the Babylonians have so elevated themselves that they have rejected God and become their own gods, wanting to determine their own future. They have so elevated themselves that they have treated others with contempt, other nations with contempt, for their own benefit. But the striking thing here is just the sheer unrestrained anger and wrath and vengeance of God who promises to pour out his judgment upon this nation. The day of the Lord will be a day of complete justice. The, le- the ledger books will be balanced. What Babylon, what Babylon had done to God and the nations around her will now be done to them. I think uh, one of the sobering things about this passage uh, is that uh, I can recognize the kind of pride that God loathes in myself. Is that true of you? How many times have I elevated myself so much that I thought that I was above God's word and could live my life and make my decisions without him? How many times have I elevated myself so much that I've put others down 
or hurt them are usually the ones I love the most. If you and I start to peel back the layers, uh, peel back our hearts like the layers of an onion, I wonder whether we will find this kind of pride lurking there as well. Now, friends, uh, at this point, uh, I just want to point out a false trail that we can take with this passage. And uh, the false trail is this. Uh, It is to read Isaiah 13 in a kind of moralizing way. Uh, You know, God is angry with the pride of Babylon, and so we should, you know, try very hard not to be proud. Uh, That's moralizing. But I want you to see that this is not really the way to read Isaiah. Uh, God is not here going around wagging his fingers at the nations, telling them to sort of lift their act a little bit. He's actually writing here to the faithful remnant in Jerusalem to remind them that he is the Lord of the nations, the sovereign Lord of the nations, and that even glorious and powerful nations like Babylon will, be, will not be able to stand against him on the day when he comes in judgment. He's writing here to build the faith of the people of Jerusalem. But when will God judge Babylon? When will God judge Babylon? Uh, Well, historically, it happened in in the year 539 BC. 539 BC. Uh, If you know your history, you will know that uh, after uh, Assyria uh, was the superpower in the region, uh, the, the next superpower after them was the nation of uh, was the kingdom of Babylon, and uh, it is the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem and took the people of Jerusalem away into exile. However, just as God predicted, the Persian Empire then came around uh, with uh, a person called King Cyrus as its king, and it is the Persian Empire who conquered the, the, the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, I think that's what is being alluded to in chapter 13, verse 7. If you have a look with me at chapter 13, verse 7, uh, God says there, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. There ostriches will dwell, and there wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. Uh, The Medes that you see there were a people who were conquered by the Persians and effectively became part of the Persian Empire. And so uh, what God is saying here is that he's stirring up uh, the the Persians 
effectively, to destroy Babylon. Notice they will be merciless in their slaughter. They will bring down the once glorious Babylon, and no one will be fit to live there except wild animals feasting on the dead. Uh, But friends, did you notice that all through our passage this morning that there are actually little hints that the judgment that will fall on Babylon is actually uh, a far bigger thing than just the historic defeat of Babylon by the Persian Empire. For if you flip back a few verses, you will see there that actually what Isaiah is looking forward to is the judgment of the whole world for its evil and its pompous pride. Uh, In verse 11, have a look with me at verse 11 again. God says there, uh, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Further, it is not just the people of Babylon who will be decimated but it's actually the whole of mankind. In verse 12, God says, I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. In other words, friends, Babylon in this passage is not just the historic Babylonian empire, but it is symbolic of the pride and arrogance of humanity who consider themselves greater than God. Uh, It's no surprise that Babylon was built in the same place as the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where, if you remember, the people in their pride built this huge tower to make a name for themselves and to challenge God as to who is really the ruler. You see, Babylon represents a proud and sinful world that has rejected God, and Isaiah looks forward to a day when the whole world will be judged by this God. Uh, It's the day that we see in our New Testament reading that was read by Luke earlier uh, from Revelation 18, where John looks forward to the fall of Babylon from the heights of its man-made glory. Uh, Yesterday, uh, I saw online uh, that the population of the world is 7.5 billion people at the moment. Uh, We're used to seeing um, on television hundreds of thousands of people being wiped out in an instant these days. Uh, Just think about natural disasters, uh, the Boxing Day tsunami some time ago, where literally hundreds of thousands of people were wiped out. But none of this has made a dent in the world's population. But here, Isaiah says that when God judges Babylon, people will be scarce. Think about the most glorious structures in this city. I don't know, the the Harbour Bridge, the Opera House, Sydney Tower, the palaces that people live in. They will be uninhabited. Just hyenas and jackals roaming around. God will bring an end to the proud and arrogant 
who stand against him and bring all to destruction. Now, friends, uh, when we are not in exactly the same situation uh, as the people of Israel, are we? Uh, we are not a nation, for example, uh, under threat from enemy nations around us. Uh, there are many things that uh, are not the same about our situation. But we are surrounded by the proud and godless who can cause us to fear them rather than God. Is that true? We're always surrounded by the proud and godless who can cause us to fear them rather than God. Uh, I mean, just think about the vocal minority who like to shout down anything that is said by Christians in the public sphere. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the extraordinary reactions of individuals and businesses this week to the video produced by the Bible Society. Has anyone seen that video here? Um, Quite a number of us have. Uh, The Bible Society released a video of uh, two politicians who had opposing views on same-sex marriage. Um, And this video was simply a video of these two people having a respectful and polite debate uh, about the issue of same-sex marriage over a glass of Cooper's beer. But uh, uh, if you were following the news this, this week, there was a huge outrage as businesses and pubs across the country threatened to boycott Cooper's beer simply because they did not agree with the conservative view and did not want to give any airtime to it. Now, I think it's fair to say that we're moving into a period where it will be more and more costly for Christians to speak out in public uh, about Christian values. Uh, You might already feel that threat uh, in your workplaces, uh, in your universities, and the places where you uh, interact with other people. Uh, Further, we live in a time of extreme fear about the Islamic nations, and their influence in the world. Not only has terrorism reached our shores, but Christians all over the world are persecuted in brutal ways and slaughtered for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is increasingly and will increasingly become more and more costly to be a Christian in this world. And we might fear for ourselves and for our children. But whatever it might be, Isaiah here reminds us that God is the sovereign Lord of the nations. No power, nor any kingdom, nor any empire that is set against God and his ways will last forever. A day is coming when he will judge the pompous and the proud and the arrogant. So even as we live in the midst of the proud and the godless in our world, uh, will you and I continue to walk by faith? Uh, Walk by faith in God's word rather than by sight, as we sang in our song this morning. 
Now, uh, we've seen, haven't we, that God is going to judge uh, the pride of Babylon. Uh, But the wonderful thing in this passage is that we also see that this judgment that is going to fall on Babylon is actually going to be for the benefit of God's people. It's going to be for their salvation and blessing. Uh, You see, judgment and salvation are just two sides of the one coin. Uh, You can see it there in chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob and the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. You see, the reason why God judges the nations is so that ultimately he can show his compassion upon his people. He will demonstrate that he has not forgotten his choice of Israel to be his very own people. He will put them back in their own land and there will be great blessing. In fact, there will be this great reversal where God's people in the future will rule over the people who previously ruled over them. But friends, did you notice that in this picture of future blessing to Israel, uh, there are these strange foreigners or sojourners who just come along and they attach themselves to Israel. Uh, It's there in verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1, uh, where it says that sojourners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Uh, Now, as I was reading this verse this week, I couldn't help but think about some nature documentaries that I've uh, seen in the past, Uh, I think it might have been a David Attenborough thing, uh, talking about the ocean. Uh, But have you seen those nature documentaries where you see these large fish? Uh, It might be a shark or a whale, and they're swimming along. And you have these little fish that kind of attach themselves to those big fish and and just kind of swim along with them. Uh, They are actually nourished by the bigger fish. Uh, That's kind of what is going on here, I think. Uh, The sojourners or foreigners to Israel just kind of attach themselves to Israel and are blessed along with God's people. Now, uh, I think this is where we can start to see ourselves in this passage because, friends, we are Gentile Christians who, by faith in Jesus have come to attach ourselves to the blessings of Israel. Is that right? Uh, The New Testament uses the image of um, a shoot being grafted into the olive tree so that we share in the blessings of the people of Israel. Uh, We are the ones who have avoided God's wrath. If our trust is in Jesus, our pride and arrogance has been nailed to the cross, And we are now attached to him and find our blessing in him. Uh, But here's the thing, friends. Uh, I think these verses also operate 
as a bit of a warning to us. For did you notice in verse 2 that the alternative to being attached to Israel and receiving her blessings is to end up as slaves who are conquered by Israel? In other words, it is only those who come to God humbly as a foreigner who will receive God's blessing of salvation. But those who continue to live in pride and arrogance for selfish human achievement and ambition will not find God's blessing. You see, Isaiah writes here not only to build up the faith of his people, but to smash the idolatry of his people as well. Now, friends, what are you and I living for? Uh, What are our hopes and dreams and aspirations and ambitions for ourselves? Uh, Perhaps for some of us, we need to repent of some of the small and petty ambitions that we have for ourselves and for our children that really have nothing to do with God and his plans for this world. As a church... Do we have dreams and aspirations to grow through our own cleverness and slick programs? Or do we humbly do things God's way by doing the hard work of introducing other people to Jesus? God says that he will one day bring an end to all pompous human pride and arrogance that sets itself up against him. And so we are not to glory in ourselves Uh, We are not to uh, work for our own selfish ambitions and dreams, but to work for the plans and purposes of God, which centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.